you know, a lot of people disagree about this and, and people who make true stories. A lot of people like the cradle to grave or feel that if you leave something out, then you're not telling the full story. My opinion is that it's a dramatic narrative. And, and if you want to watch everything, you should watch a documentary. But I think for this, you know, this was a very specific story about this very specific time in her life. And if we had put everything in there, I think it would have dulled the narrative and dulled the message. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're joined by the talented Liz Hanna, writer of the acclaimed 2017 political drama, The Post. There aren't many first-time screenwriters who sit down to write a script and soon find themselves on set with Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks bringing that script to life. That's what happened to Liz on the back of her gripping screenplay for The Post, about America's first female newspaper publisher, Catherine Graham, and her role in exposing one of the most notorious government cover-ups in US history. Co-written by Josh Singer, the film went on to become one of that year's most celebrated dramas, a nail-biting account of a woman facing an impossible decision, set in the 1970s, but with a message about democracy and freedom of speech relevant today. Here's Liz on the movie's journey from her kitchen table to Oscar's acclaim, how she shaped the feminist story at the movie's heart, and whether or not she foresees herself ever writing a spiritual sequel to The Post, about Donald Trump's battles with our current media. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camel Demek. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. The Post came out in 2017. And since then, journalism and the importance of a free press, which is kind of the key focus of, of the film, has suffered hit after hit. And just this week, over here in the UK, we've had cuts announced at the BBC and at The Guardian. That's consistent with what's happening kind of everywhere. I wanted to start off by asking, do you think you think the film hits differently at all now compared to when you wrote it, maybe more tinged with horror and tragedy because of all the ways that the freedoms discussed in the movie have been bulldozed in real life? Yeah, I mean, I wrote the first draft of the script in the summer of 2016. And at that time, obviously in the, the United States, it was, there was a presidential election going on. And um, I think everyone thought it was going to go a way that it did not. Mm. Um, but, you know, at that point, I think, you know, specifically to the states that Trump was attacking journalists as he always has done, but it was not nearly to the extent that it is now. And even over the course of the next six months, you know, I sold the script in um, November before the election and then Trump won. And I definitely felt for a moment like no one wants to see this movie because it's a movie about a woman who, you know, finds her voice and um, claims her, you know, sort of own power and self-worth very um, much to her credit amy pascal my producer on the movie was like this movie has to get made even more now and then over the course of the next sort of three months um culminating sort of in trump taking office and then very quickly kicking you know journalists out of the press room not allowing journalists to observe as they're intended to do in the white house or in the west wing um the message of the movie became even more powerful and I think became more timely, unfortunately. You know, it was not something that I had set out to to make as a timely film in terms of um, a reflection on the press or a reflection on the Fifth Estate. And um, it's been fairly, I mean, I think for everyone, it's been very disconcerting and upsetting to see what's happened to journalism in the last um, four years, I guess. But even more so, it's strange to watch a movie that, you know, it takes place in 1971. It is not about Donald Trump. It is not about um, the United States in 2020 or 2017. Mm -hmm. And yet the relevancy of it and the relevancy of women in power and um, the rights of journalists to publish things that the American people deserve to know. I think that is still somehow up in the air. You know, that's still Mm -hmm. a debate somehow. And um, so it's it's been very strange to sort of reflect on the last few years when, you know, we made a movie that really, when I writ- had written it, was not intended to be um, timely in any way. Mm. So what was the point in the process when you realized that there were contemporary echoes? So I think, I mean, I always wanted it to feel relevant in, in, in ways. And I think, you know, 
for me and in many, many ways, that script was a coming of age story about Catherine Graham. And I think coming of age stories are always relevant. And so I, I think on a personal level, that was what was for me. And I think obviously looking at the time I was writing it and Hillary Clinton running for election and running for the presidency. And so I think there were parallels in terms of that. It was funny though, because the Pentagon Papers were really the backdrop of the movie. They were not at all intended for for it to be, that was not supposed to be relevant. Mm-hmm. That was not supposed to be the part that was um, the one that we keep watching and we're like, wow, so nothing has changed in 45 years or 49 <laughs> years. Yeah. And um, so I, I would say that I was, I'm always sad when um, it's relevant to tell the story of you know, a woman finding her voice or coming to power because we would hope that that story's been told and we, we're existing in a world where we don't have to remind people that women um, have the power uh, of thought and, uh, <laughs> and that they should be in charge or can be in charge. The moment that it became clear that the Pentagon Papers and, and really the story of the journalists outside of Catherine Graham's story was relevant was, I would say it's when Donald Trump took office. So it would be in early um, 2017 that mm. um, he, you know, it was not just that he was kicking people out. It was obviously all of the things he's doing and and the continuous thing he's done over the past four years of, you know, facts aren't facts and, you know, right isn't right and wrong isn't wrong. And I'm going to create my own um, narrative of reality and, I think with the Pentagon Papers and with the Post, you know, there's a document of truth. It it is about telling the truth, regardless of um, whether it's good or not. You know, the thing about the Pentagon Papers, it's always been interesting to me, is that Robert McNamara was the person who commissioned the report, and he was probably the person who's one of the people who's at most fault for um, the at least the last ten years of the Vietnam War, if not more. And so, I think there is a, a uh, there has to be some sort of self-preservation for the United States and for the world of reflecting on our mistakes in order to not make them again. And, you know, with 1971, with the Post and with the New York Times publishing the papers and going to, to court about them, I think it was really defining that you can't just hide something because it makes you look bad. You can't, you can't just um, keep the truth away from the world or, you know, specific to this, the American people, because you just think it makes you look bad. And and that for me is the thing that is unfortunately constantly relevant, you know, and we've seen that consistently over the last four years of we're just not going to reveal that because it makes us look bad or because it doesn't spin it the right way. And not to say that I'm naive that this happens in politics all the time, but I think that nobody's really seen anything to this extent as it's happening now. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about, the Pentagon Papers being like a backdrop because it really occurred to me when reading reading this first draft that you could take away the political tornado swirling around Kay in this film and you'd still have this really fascinating character who's thrust into a job that she didn't ask for in an industry that's misogynist and she's dealing with grief but she has to step up and transform from this somewhat kind of meek personality who lets men speak for her into this leader who makes a decision that ends up altering the history of the United States. So can you, can you talk to me about Kay? What was it you found so compelling about her real life story? And how important was it for the post to be like a human story of her transformation and not just a retelling of a political situation? It's a great question. I mean, so much for me about how I come at anything as a writer is through character. And this was my first, um, script that got produced. It was also my first screenplay that I felt like really was the type of movie that I wanted to make. You know, prior to this, I'd been sort of writing things that I thought that I was supposed to write, you know, like um, relationship dramas and things like that, which is not, I I love those and I, you know, continue to write them. But I also was like, I want to write, you know, a, a political thriller that's a character piece. I hadn't seen, I grew up watching 70s thrillers and 70s political thrillers and um, 70s character pieces. And those were things that I really wanted to be, or even, you know, sort of like the 90s Grisham movies that mm. um, have this drive and kind of um, the propellant is some type of political backdrop or legal backdrop, but the story is really the character. And so I really had been wanting to write that. That's what I felt like I hadn't seen. And 
which by the way, I don't recommend like writing a movie because you're like, this hasn't been made forever. It'll totally get made. Um, it's a really bad, it, it somehow works for me, but it's not a great way to reverse engineer something. Um, but I, I, so I had read Catherine Graham's book, Personal History, um, her memoir when I was in my early twenties and had just sort of fallen in love with her. I was, I was probably 22 or 23 when I read it. She was in her seventies when she wrote it. Um, mm-hmm. so it was interesting to me that I felt so connected to somebody that I, had, I could not have had a, a more 180 degree different life than her in so many ways. But the way she spoke, the way re- she reflected on her life, I found really moving. And I, I, when I sort of sat down to kind of think about how to write this movie, I wanted it to be the story of this woman that nobody knew about. You know, I, I think. Washington knows about her and and a lot of sort of people in journalism had had known about her but peep the greater you know sort of entertainment world or or even kind of um just regular people didn't and she wasn't in all the president's men um she's mentioned but she did not get uh, her scene mm-hmm. um so I really felt like she was somebody that deserved to have that place and deserved to have her story told and it wasn't until and it was, and finding sort of crafting her arc was pretty difficult because, as you said, she is meek. You know, she starts off very, um, she she's just completely handcuffed by self doubt and has no self worth and and doesn't have the confidence to do it. And mm-hmm. you know, regardless of the fact that she was actually probably the most trained person to be in that role and the person who um, had the most experience to make the decisions um, outside of just journalism experience. And so she really, I found her very impressive, but you know, she had a crazy life and there could be a thousand movies made about her and probably like 12 limited series. And so I spent a long time trying to figure out what that backdrop was. And it wasn't until I read Ben Bradley's memoir where he started talking about Kay that I realized that it was actually about their relationship in many ways, that it was about, kind of the origin story of this superhero team that would then go on for the next 40 years to take down, you know, bring truth to to politics and truth to journalism. And so once I kind of figured, and then I realized because of that, it was the Pentagon Papers that were the backdrop. And so then once I realized that, kind of it all fell into place because they're, you know, very organically. And if you pick the right true story, the story kind of presents itself in in narrative form at times. And with this, you know, it was fairly soon after her husband had unfortunately committed suicide. Um, Her kids were out on their own, you know, starting to really be uh, flourishing as people. She was kind of empty nest syndrome a little bit. and, And at the same time, the most, you know, the biggest socialite in Washington, D.C. is still hosting parties and still, do, you know, doing all of these dinners. Mm-hmm. So it was like this amalgamation of things that happened. And I like the idea of seeing kind of the mouse become the lion. And I like the idea of, of seeing somebody who in the opening, you know, of the movie can't speak and can't really articulate her thoughts. But you can see that there's a fire there and you can see that she's um, not going to back down if she's really pushed to it and then ultimately getting to the end, that's like, you know, what's next? And I, and and looking ahead rather than being insecure about what is to come. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I had no idea until reading up on Catherine's life for, for this podcast. I had no idea that her life was so full of drama and tragedy beyond the story that's told in the post. How did you kind of work out what to reference, what to allude to, what to leave out? I mean, there's so much stuff. Her father's suicide, her her troubled home life with her late husband. How did you kind of navigate all that? A lot of it is sort of weeding through and finding the most streamlined arc for the character and then filling in if there's something missing. So I, I, with this movie, when I wrote the first draft, I carded it, which meant like I put no cards up as I sometimes do and sometimes just bury myself in a dark, deep writing hole and then realize I have to card them. Um, But so I basically laid out all the events of the time of this movie, what happened from the opening of the movie to the end of the movie and, and the events that really are propelling the plot for, for that. And then kind of from there reverse engineered her arc 
and into, you know, what are the moments? What is the, what is she thinking here that's going to push her to make this decision? Um, the Robert McNamara scene was really important in their relationship. And from that, you kind of, or at least in this situation, I realized the things that I needed and something that we really needed was her relationship with Lally was really important, her, her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, I think, was the way that we were able to have a conversation about her husband's death and, and about the, the expectations or lack thereof that had been put on her um, as a wife and as a mother. And, and, and similarly, we were able to, with the Robert McNamara scene, which, we all, which I had been in the original draft and was something we really you know, felt so important, not only because of his relationship to the Pentagon Papers, but he was Kay's most trusted friend and had put most of the board of, of the Washington Post together for her. Mm. Um, and this was such a personal moment between the two of them um, because of what she decided to do and, and because of what he had decided to do. And so that was really helpful in sort of figuring out what we needed before that to define their relationship um, Mm. and to define the relationship that they maybe had the, the lack thereof transparency of the relationship because of, uh, you know, gender norms and, and any of these, you know, sort of biases. And then with Ben, you know, I think that was really our guiding light, kind of the North star of the film is the relationship between her and Ben and, him growing to respect her. Um, and I think, you know, he respects her in the beginning because she's his boss, mm. but then comes to respect her as a person and an individual and as a woman and as all of these things by the end. And um, that was really, that was, if if the story was not sort of um, being, or if the, if the scenes and the scene work was not propelling that, then there was, th- there were things to cut, you know, and, and things to look at and, and making sure that it was kind of the cleanest arc to tell how Kay, you know, finally stands on her own two feet. Um, and there, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people disagree about this and, and people who make true stories, a lot of people like the cradle to grave or, um, feel that if you leave something out, then you're not telling the full story. My opinion is that it's a dramatic narrative, and and if you want to watch everything, you should watch a documentary. That's not a knock. That's just mm-hmm. or or you should read Kay's book. I mean, everybody should read Kay's book. And if you listen to audiobooks, she reads it herself, which is unbelievable. Um, but I think for this, it's you know this was a very specific story about this very specific time in her life, and if we had put everything in there, I think it would have dulled the narrative and dulled the message, um, and and not been um, as I think universal which is the other important thing Mm. but one of the things that is quite striking about the post is the amount of awkward truths that in the hands of other filmmakers might have been scrubbed out to make it a little bit cleaner so there's definitely a version of this movie that could exist where Kay is this kind of like you know indomitable boss lady on a one-woman mission but instead you keep in her vulnerability her flaws and similarly, this could be this could have been streamlined into sort of one newsroom's valiant fight, airbrushing out the lot, airbrushing out a lot of the New York Times hard work on which the Post's victory was ultimately founded. Did the fact that the Post is ultimately a story about truth force you to be kind of careful about making this a truthful adaptation of events? Like, how did you balance that? Absolutely. I mean, when you make a movie about journalists, they get really mad if you don't if you don't tell it accurately. <laughs> and we had a lot of consultants on set um, from the Post and and people that um, and from and 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 people who had known Kay and Ben. And so, you know, if we didn't get something right, they would have definitely let us know. Um, the thing that again, sort of going to what I was saying about a crazy thing when you tell a true story and it sort of lays it out for you is. The, the events of these, you know, sort of weeks that we tell in the story are so eventful and so dramatic that there isn't a huge need to amalgamate or to create. Um, and a lot of that goes to, I would also say, you know, so Josh Singer came on when um, Steven Spielberg signed on to do the movie. Josh came on um, a few weeks later because we were shooting in like four days. And um, <laughs> he and I went through, you know, based off of my draft 
Um, we then were getting notes from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from the Graham family, from um, Sally Quinn, uh, Ben Bradley's wife, um, from basically everybody who'd ever known them and ever heard about the Pentagon Papers, and then putting them into the script to make sure that it was completely accurate. And the thing that I'm the proudest of and the thing that I think is um, such a tribute to Stephen and such a tribute to Meryl Streep is that Kay feels real and she yeah. feels like who Kay was. And that was something that was, you know, I, I obviously put a lot of pressure on myself in the writing of her to make her feel that way. But um, Meryl, too, felt such a huge obligation because we all just respected her so much. Um, Meryl, obviously, but Kay, we mm-hmm. just respected and admired her so much. And she felt like somebody who really hadn't gotten her due. And we didn't want to do a bad version of that. Um, you know, there was a story that was shared to us uh, when we were on set that, so her, her memoir won the Pulitzer Prize and she had spent the better part of a decade basically writing, her, researching her memoir like she would a journalist. So she interviewed everyone in her life and like had these hard conversations with them and um, recounted all of these events and made sure that it was accurate and then made it a memoir and commented on it, which is why the book is really wonderful and so she won the Pulitzer Prize and she was in the post office getting the facts saying she won the Pulitzer. And when she heard about it, she said like, oh, that's so nice of them. That's nice of them that they did that rather than I earned this or rather than I made, mm-hmm. you know, I made this. Th- this has been 10 years of my life and it is a story of my life. She was like, oh, well, that's lovely. And I think that is sort of the personality of Kay Graham or was the personality of Kay Graham. And that was something we really wanted to impart and make sure that, you know, she was um, not perfect. You know, she was fallible in many ways, um, but she was also really funny and very um, direct at times. And her relationship with Ben could be very, it could be a sparring match at, at any given moment. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that Ben says about her. There's a there's a few interviews about her that he at times like loves her and at times hates her. And you know, yeah. they have they had a really wonderful relationship. So it was, I think, for me, and to answer your question, is it was a process of just kind of always having the north star of who Kay was and being able to listen to her memoir is really was really helpful. Being able to hear her voice constantly and sort of her affectations. Um, and then when you put Meryl Streep in the role, you kind of just get out of the way and, and you just sit back and watch. It's not everyone that writes a spec script and all of a sudden Steven Spielberg is attached to direct. Meryl Streep is attached to star and Tom Hanks is also attached to co-star. What was what was it like as these names began to roll in and the, the project began to kind of like snowball and it was all happening? It must have been crazy surreal, right? It was extremely surreal. And I'm fortunate actually that it a, I'm fortunate that it happened at all, but B, I'm fortunate it happened so quickly because I think if I had had time to think about it, I would have flipped out and not been <laughs> able to focus or do my job. You know, we, um, I think Stephen and Tom and Meryl all signed on within a week of each other um, in, I think, January or February of 2017. And then we were shooting in May. So we were shooting less than nine weeks later. And in that time, you know, there was an enormous amount of prep work to to get the production up and running and to get everybody on board. Um, but there was a huge amount of heavy lifting to be done to the script in terms of bringing it to um, the level of fact. You know, there that that making sure that everything was vetted, making sure that everybody felt that this was a reflection of of the people they knew. Um, and so, if I had not been um, if it had not happened as quickly, I think I would have just like buried myself in my bed and not known what to do and been incapacitated. Um, but it's really, you know, I think the thing that is the most remarkable and the thing that I really carry with me f- from the movie is just how much fun everybody had making it and how much fun Steven has making movies. I, I haven't made another one with him, but I've, I, I know that he, um, does it because he enjoys it, does it because he has fun. And that goes, I think, to his entire crew that he's worked with for a kajillion years and um, the cast that we had on the film. You know, everybody showed up to work every every day and was like, this is crazy. We're here. Um, And, you know, we shot it for nine weeks and and we had about, I want to say we had like maybe a month or five weeks of the full journalism, the full press cast. And so, you know, we had Carrie Coon and Bob Odenkirk and Hanks and 
um, just an insane sort of group of people. And every day they would be like, guys, this is crazy. We're on a Steven Spielberg set. And I was like, I know. Um, so everybody kind of felt that way. So it, it, it dulled the, my trying to be cool about it. Like I was allowed to sort of just be like, yeah, this is insane. Steven Spielberg is right there and he's making this movie. Um, so it was, you know, I, I think the thing that was nice is I didn't have to sort of pretend like, oh, this is super casual. And like, of course this happens. No, everybody was like, this is bananas and you should uh, you should expect that this will never happen again and i was like yeah. i know <laughs> so let's dive into this actual first draft which starts a little bit differently to the finished movie so we start at this morning meeting in a fancy dining room between ben and Kay. Um, it's breakfast there's a soft hum of conversation the glass windows on one side show off the dc skyline ben late 40s articulate but short-tempered sits with his back against the view he has a red pencil in hand and reads a draft of a story all around him are men reading newspapers. Ben squints to get a better look. Every paper's the New York Times. So we then meet Kay, who sits down, and immediately immediately we kind of get a hint of their quite tricky relationship. Um, can you tell me about this scene and why ultimately you decided it wasn't the right starting point for the movie? So it's completely because I'm obsessed with the social network. <laughs> and um, so, uh, but it's... It, yeah, I mean that's the funny answer, but it is also partially true. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm a bit of like a um, POV hound, and I have it, it. It can be hard for me when I'm watching a movie and there's multiple POVs that are, um, you know, the A story, and I don't meet them at the same time, or I don't meet them within the same moment with each other. And for me, this story, yes, in so many, I mean you know, Kay is number one on the call sheet and, and she is the lead of the film, but it was the story of the two of them and the story of how their relationship and really propelled um, the Washington post. And so when kind of coming out of the beginning of, of figuring out how to break the movie, I wanted to have the scene, the opening scene be dynamic in terms of the two of them and really introduce you that, this is, these are the people who are going to be, you know, championing this movie and also having fun with the dialogue and having fun with their relationship. I, I think that um, dialogue, by the way, can be completely overused, but um, in this scenario, you kind of get instantly that they're, they spar with each other. There's like a chip on somebody's shoulder about something, you know, that then is a little, you know, can be a little icy or a little, uh, in his own, you know, in his own corner at times. And, and so it was, that was where it initiated. And, and frankly, because I think the opening of the social network is one of the most amazing openings of a film and proved to me something that I had hoped was true, which is like, you can open a movie with 12 pages of dialogue and people will keep reading it. Um, So that was where it initially started. And then very smartly, um, very quickly after Stephen came on board, um, he was like, if we want people under the age of 30 to watch this movie, we have to explain what the Pentagon papers are and what the Vietnam war was and like what, and not, you know, sort of in layman's terms of, or, or not in a condescending way of saying like this, we're not, we, we expect everybody knows what the uh, Vietnam war is, but I think Pentagon papers were really unknown. You know, they're, they're Watergate is the thing that people think of when they think of Nixon or when they think of the seventies and in politics. And so, um, very quickly with, with, uh, Steven coming on board, we open, we put in the opening of Vietnam and put in the opening of, um, of Daniel Ellsberg, uh, going to Vietnam and witnessing it and then coming back and stealing the Pentagon papers, um, copying them and stealing them. And so that it also was for me, I think, the difference is that I was writing a movie at my kitchen table without represent, without agency representation. I had my managers and my lawyer, but like I had never sold a movie before and had really just wanted this script to get me an agent. (laughs) I was like, I just want to get an agent. I want to get a job. Like I I would like to start writing these types of movies. I had no, um, I had no belief that the movie was going to get made. And so once you go from a script that gets noticed and, and, you know, I was, hugely important, if not the most important thing that could have ever happened in my career was writing that script, but then it has to become a movie. And, and Steven very much, um, I think understands an audience's 
willingness to not understand, um, but only to a certain point. And so it's we have to lay the breadcrumbs and breadcrumbs enough to get to the point of of that. And then from there, Stephen had um, this transition in his mind from the beginning um, of the fire and the sound of gunshots transitioning to the books falling off of her in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And then that's what she, and that's what wakes her up. And um, it was just such a beautiful transition that it made, it, it wouldn't have made sense not to do it. There's something playful about how that scene did end up developing because you watch it and the movie almost begins through the eyes of the whistleblower, Daniel. And yeah, I kind of, I guess I wanted to ask, is there a lesson to be learned for any aspiring screenwriters about how sometimes the best way into a story isn't through the character you expect? Because 99 out of 100 people wanting to tell the story of the Pentagon Papers might have done so through the eyes of the whistleblower, but this story is told through Kay. What do you think was the benefit of seeing the story through her perspective compared to Daniel's? What are the benefits of approaching a story through the eyes of someone adjacent to the story and not perhaps at the centre of it like Daniel would have been? Um, I think, well, definitely is that if you're telling the story through the eye, if you're telling a political story through the eyes of either the whistleblower or somebody intimately involved with it, then you're inherently making your audience choose a side, even if subconsciously they're going to choose a side of if they think the character did the right thing or not, because they're a real person. So, and even if you're making a narrative, a a complete fictionalization of something like this, a whistleblower is just a very hot, um, hot character and um, will be divisive in, in your storytelling. And so, which is not to say that there isn't a a reason to do that. I I think there absolutely is. But if that is not your goal, then looking outside of the, of the, the whistleblower of, or somebody intimately involved makes it less divisive. And then you're not having a conversation of what they did was right or wrong. It's actually about what they're exposing was right or wrong. So for instance, I mean, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, obviously all the president's men was really important, um, for this movie and for me um, in writing it. But I think, you know, the reason that a lot of people depict journalists as the storytellers of these things or as the main characters of these, of these stories is because they're looking for just the facts and they're not personally motivated to um, expose it one way or the other. You know, I think, um, and so for this, what was interesting for, for the post, what was interesting was, you know, Dan Ellsberg is, in my opinion, I think he's a genius and I think he is a patriot and and I've gotten to know him and he's a, a, on a personal level, just a very lovely man. Um, what he did was extremely divisive. It divided the country, it divided politics, it divided, you know, um, um, it divided everybody. And I think um, depicting him as the main character would have created that divisiveness. Whereas making Kay the main character and having it be her reflection, what's interesting is that she's from a group of people that supports the Republican Party. You know, she is from a group of people that holds fundraisers for the Republican Party. You know, I think post Kennedy, a lot of the upper class of of D.C. ended up, you know, kind of shifting towards a more Republican slant and and um, or kind of a. We'll raise money for whomever we agree with, regardless of party. But in this case, you know, um, a lot, I mean, Robert McNamara was her best friend. There were many, many people that were sitting at her table who had been involved in um, or or peripheral to the Pentagon Papers. So making her the main character and as a reflection on it no longer is political. It's kind of self um it's she has to it, it becomes a self-reflection on the people you surround yourself with and the things you allow to happen even though you know that they're happening and this even goes to ben you know because kennedy is is one of the presidents that is obviously mentioned in the pentagon papers and made many decisions that um propelled the vietnam war to continue and um Kennedy was was one of Ben Bradley's best friends, if not his best friend. And so he is also forced to reflect on what did I allow? Um, and we had actually had a scene in the movie that we ended up cutting because it just, it for time, it didn't make sense. And there were kind of one too many scenes of everybody being like, they're terrible. Um, and uh, there, but there was a scene where Ben's character reflected on a time, which is in Ben's, one of Ben's memoirs, where he was asked by Kennedy not to publish a story. 
and then then didn't publish the story. And he regrets it and talks about that regret and talks about what would have happened if I'd done that. The story, by the way, was like a Z story. It wasn't anything, but you know, it was just something that he that Kennedy had asked him not to publish. I think it was like an embarrassing thing. It wasn't political. And um, so it in going to your question. So when you sort of expand outside of the whistleblower, you're able to actually, I I think personally, have more um introspective conversations and that then I think become more universal and more relevant because you're not specifically talking then about was Daniel Ellsberg right or wrong for stealing the Pentagon Papers and publishing them in the New York, having them published in the New York Times and the Washington Post. You're going to, well, what do we do when we know that something is wrong and we don't say anything? When we know that the people we surround ourselves with are trusted colleagues or even taking it a step further and saying just people we've elected, you know, so they don't have to be your friends, but people we've elected and we know that they're doing something wrong, but it's going to affect me if I say something about it. And do I really want to do that? And I think that for me, it was the more relevant question to be asking in terms of the Pentagon Papers and specific to Kay and specific to Ben, rather than, you know, was Dan right or wrong? Yeah, that's another of the big kind of um, issues that the film grapples with. The the inner machinations of like the elite and how the papers and p- politicians are often entwined and Kay really feels like she's trapped between these two worlds and being pulled between between the two of them one moment that amazed me was um I always assumed when watching the film that that moment in the script where uh, Kay's in the middle of a party giving a speech to all these well-to-do members of the upper class that's when she's pulled away to make the decision to publish the papers I assumed, I just thought that was such a perfect metaphor for these two worlds that she's trapped between. But actually, am I right in thinking that was actually, that that was true, that happened, and she was in fact at a party giving a speech when she was pulled away and had to make this incredible decision? Yep, it was at a party. Robert McNamara was there. It was, it, 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 it again, one of those things that's like it could not have been sort of dramatically perfect <laughs> um, because it was real life. What's interesting about the original script versus the the film is so in the original script it only happens once. So in the in the in my spec script, you know, she gets pulled out of the party and she has to bend runs over and they have this very dramatic conversation about it, um, which was basically an amalgamation of two things that had happened, which was because in in the actual film, it happens how it happened, which is she made the decision and then she was forced to make the decision again. Like she had to double down on it. Mm. And I, in writing the spec was like, nobody's going to watch this twice. And like, this is the, it's the same decision twice. And it's like, I, you know, I was sort of like, this is not going to happen. And I also was like a phone call is really not that dramatic. Little did I know. Um, <laughs> and so I had, I had combined them. And when Stephen came on board, he was like, I think we need to separate them. He's like, I think we need to show both because we need to show that she's willing to double down, that she's willing when confronted with all of the facts, confronted with the potential of going to prison or to jail or and, and losing the paper and confronted with everything that she still sticks by Ben's side and she still decides to do it. And he was like, and also we're going to build a rig so that we can like make the phone call dramatic. And I was like, okay, that that makes more sense than just you know a bunch of people on the phone with each other. Yeah. Um, but it's it's exactly how it happened, which is crazy. One thing that seems to be missing, or at least downplayed in this early draft, is the financial future of the publication. So, did you add in the scenes at the beginning of the finished movie about the paper going public to kind of up the stakes and give the audience the sense of this really kind of precarious situation? Yes. So that was something that happened. It was kind of something I'd always thought about, but I just hadn't really been able to figure out how to do it. And when um, Josh came on board, I mean, you know, Josh is a maniac and he basically consumed all the research I'd done in three years in about four days. And something that had really stuck out to him was the company going public. And so it it was in there, but it wasn't at all as as monumental as it becomes. Yeah, it's quite late in that it's introduced, yeah. And so he, he very much was of the opinion, like, we should top load this with all of the pressure and make sure that everybody, you know, that the audience understands that it's not just X, Y, and Z. It's also they're going public and the IPO is going to be announced. And, you know, it, and because all these things did happen in that timeline, and again, this was going to my sort of like trying to streamline it to make it as, as kind of character specific, 
Um, but Josh was like, no, we should really have that in. So that was something that Josh came in um, really wanting to put in there and we were able to figure out a way to do it and then had people um, make sure that it sounded right <laughs> and was actually what, and I, I learned so much more about IPOs than I ever thought I would want to or needed to. And for about four weeks after we made the movie, it was in my head and it's all gone now. <laughs> Um, another a character that's missing from this draft is Arthur Parsons, who, am I right in thinking, Arthur did not exist in real life, but in the finished film, it's, so in the finished film, they kind of come across as this amalgamation of all Kay's doubters and perhaps even a little bit of a manifestation of her own self-doubt. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit about that character and how he evolved? Yeah, so um, he was originally, so the original role of that was based on a real person in, in the spec script. And there, there's just not a lot of information about him out there. And I think very rightfully so, because he is in many ways, what you just said, he's sort of vocalizing um, all the insecurities and he's the doubter. And so in some ways he's kind of the villain, even though he's really not, but at times he's at least the antagonist um, in moments with Kay. And so we didn't really feel like it was fair to use a real person who we couldn't know if that was their relationship. And there wasn't really anybody who could tell us if that was the experience that they'd had. And so we decided to make a a composite character, which becomes Arthur Parsons, which is Bradley Whitford's role. And kind of, A, that made it a little more freeing and that we were able to have these conversations that we knew happened, but specifically make them into one person. Um, and also, you know, we, I think we very much didn't want to be irresponsible in creating a depiction of a real person and that wasn't who he was. And so mm-hmm. we didn't want to um, do that if we couldn't confirm anything and, and we couldn't. And, and for all accounts, um, he was not similar to Arthur Parsons in that way, but Arthur Parsons was kind of four or five male board members that very much went after her and and was kind of that antagonist role because mm. it's it that same that same like element is threaded into this early draft and in fact at one point ben chastises Kay for a quote she's said in a newspaper interview men are men are more able than women at executive work i think a man would be better at this job than i am as a woman um obviously in the finnish film you have him kind of being heard, overheard, sort of making these same kind of remarks. Is it just cinematically more satisfying to have someone that Kay can prove wrong and sort of beat almost at the at the end of the film? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, being able to ha- have a person that Kay's character can stand up and say, this is my paper too, and really feel that like win, you know, that's the thing yeah. I think when we would see it in a movie theater um, when it came out and we had to see the last like 20 minutes, 12 times, because, you know, it's, that's <laughs> like right before you go um, talk about it. It's, you know, I've, I know like the last three notes of the score that play at, at the end of the credits really well. <laughs> um, but that's the moment I think that's like the cheering moment. That's the moment. That's the victory moment given like you still have Supreme court ruling and you still have these things, but it's really when Kay stands up and is like, this is my paper that you feel the victory and you feel like she's finally realizing her power. And so, yes, it is to have a, have a actual person she's able to say that to is really important. Um, I also think, you know, that, that quote to me is something. So she said that a few years before the start of the film. Yeah. That's a real quote. Is it? Mm-hmm. And that's a real quote that she said, which I think it, I had read that in my research very, very early on and was both stunned and not stunned to find it. Mm. Um, and there's something I think very powerful about not playing that line in the movie, but having her sort of ex- seem like that's exactly who she is, that she definitely doesn't believe that a woman should be running a company. And, you know, that was Kay's sort of perspective for a very long time. Um, Gloria Steinem, who was a close friend of Kay's, was kind of the one who was like, Kay, you're actually a feminist. Like you didn't know this, but you are. Mm. And um, you have to be because of how powerful you are. And it, and Kay in her memoir really credit, credits Gloria Steinem for kind of losing, you know, ripping the veil from her eyes, I guess, of, you know, Kay had been raised in a very, very patriarchal workspace and home life 
um, not only with her father, but with her husband. And so getting to a point where she could recognize that that's not potentially the right world to be living in took a long time. Um, and I think the the kind of the grace that um, Gloria Steinem gave her, which was like, I'm not expecting you to figure out all of these things now, but maybe in a year you're going to have to come to the table and realize that you have to start speaking up because you are one of the most powerful women in the country and you have to do this. You mentioned that scene towards the end there where, uh, yeah, she does get that win. She makes that decision. She sort of, I think at one point she says, I'm speaking now. And it's the exact opposite of the behavior that we've seen at the beginning of the film. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, yeah, how you managed to crack that scene and and also why it's important that Kay makes that decision, not because she realizes it's what her husband would have done or what her father would have done. She's making that decision because it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, that scene was a, kind of a hard one because it is the culmination of so many things and, and it's the culmination of her relationship with Ben and basically the, the I think the thing that, mattered about crafting all of the moments because when you get to a climax like this it's actually not about that scene itself it's about all the events that you've laid before it to get to that scene so it actually feels like a win and it feels cohesive Mm. and then kind of everything else falls into place for it so getting to that scene was really important to have her articulate the pressure that she feels with her the legacies of her father and her husband Um, and the legacy she feels she has to continue for her children to then take over for specifically for her son, Don to take over. And at the same time, showing that Ben expects more from her and that Ben is, you know, on, on, if there's a devil and an angel on your shoulders, not defining which one Ben is. Um, (laughs) but Ben is the one who's saying like, you have to tell the truth. And at the same time, Kay realizing that, he is also doing this for selfish reasons. You know, he wants the Washington Post to be the Washington Post. He doesn't want it to be a local newspaper. He wants people to say it in the same breath as the New York Times. And he wants to be able to say he's the executive editor of the Washington Post and for people to, you know, ooh and ah. Um, So as much as, yes, he is a journalist, yes, he believes in right and wrong and he believes in truth, he also believes in the fact that he wants to be the Ben Bradley. Mm. Um, and so I think it was leading up to that scene that we wanted to make sure we'd laid all the groundwork for the fact that, um, Ben was pressuring her, but maybe not for the, you know, for unselfish reasons that the board didn't trust her, you know, that they really believed that she was, um, um, an empty shirt and then that her children actually respected her and wanted her to be more and her inability to be more um, is is leading almost even more so to her deeper insecurity. Um, and then of course the McMara of it all and the realization that like Nixon is actually gonna come after you if this happens and and you have no idea kind of the level of, of hell that's gonna be rained down on you. So making sure that all of those pieces are cleanly set up throughout so that when you get to that climactic scene where she finally has to make, you know, the decision and she finally says that it's her paper, that once that, once all of those things, all of those things, those simple little (laughs) scenes um, for the first hour and a half of the movie um, are laid out and you've got those threads going, then it's, you know, it's almost like you just put Meryl in a room and she, you know, says it's her paper because it's, it's about, there's no other end to the, that moment than this is mine and that, and it has to be mine now. And I have to sort of live up to whatever I'm going to live up to or I'm going to fail. And that's what it is. But as you say, even after that moment, you begin to weave in all the like legalities of them publishing and there's all these complicating factors and the tension really begins to ramp up to this crazy crescendo. I was wondering whether there are any uh, any other movies or any other screenwriters who you look to in terms of mounting this tension, hurtling towards this impossible kind of outcome. Absolutely. Um, I mean, William Goldman, I think, is a huge influence. Patty Shayevsky, um, Aaron Sorkin is, you know, I think in terms of contemporary screenwriters, the person who does this type of movie the best. You know, he can somehow make a legal thriller seem like 
an actual thriller. Um, so uh, I would say those are, in terms of this movie in particular, those were the people that I was reading for that. And then for kind of the dynamics of, of the characters, um, Nora Ephron is somebody that I am humongously inspired by, um, you know, as a writer in general. But I think, you know, her dynamics and the way she allows her characters to interact with each other. The movie actually is dedicated to Nora um, because um, she, so it's in the very serendipitous weird things of this movie. um, There's one quote on the back of personal history and it's from Nora Ephron. And Nora also was extremely close to Hanks, obviously, he made a number of movies with her. Meryl, they made a number of movies together. Amy Pascal, they made a number of movies together. And then Stephen and Nora were very close. And in the Hamptons, there is like a triangle of houses. And one of the houses is owned by Stephen. One of the houses was owned by Nora Ephron. And the other house was owned by Ben Bradley. And they would have dinners uh-huh. together. So when this movie came together and, and Hanks had actually met Ben Bradley once. And so when it had dinner and he was like wildly intimidated by him, he said, which I thought was great. <laughs> um, but so when this movie started to happen, that was actually the first decision that ever was made. And it was, you know, a huge honor for me to, to have her name in anywhere in any sort of moment that mine <laughs> is. Um, but really I think, you know, to your question, people tend to look to similar films or similar genre films or scripts when they're writing something like that. You know, if you're writing a horror, you watch a horror, you read a horror script, if you, or, or genre in general. And I always encourage people to read outside of that. You know, I think that there um, is so much to find. I mean, you know, do you, would you put the post and sleepless in Seattle in the same genre conversation? Probably not on the surface, but then you look at kind of the relationships or at least I would hope, you know, you, Mm. I'm definitely not patting myself on the back on this, but I I think in terms of the influence, you look at her dynamics of her characters, you look at how they speak to each other, particularly how men and women speak to each other. And that was hugely influential for, for the writing of the post. So I super, super, super um, strongly encourage writers to read everything you never know where the character will come from or the moments will come from um and how you can get inspired by something and and i also think if you're writing a drama you should not read just dramas you should be reading comedies because if a drama isn't funny then it's just boring and nobody's going to pay attention to it and talk to me about the ending how did you realize that although this decision was being made in the supreme court we needed to be hearing it in the newsroom. So that that was, um, I think this was, it was either Josh or Steven's idea. So it wasn't mine. Um, and I, I would love to take credit for it, but I, <laughs> I, I can't. Um, and they'll yell at me. Um, uh, no, I think um, that was a conversation at some point where, you know, the, the, the press room had become such an ensemble. And we also had at this point because we were casting while we were writing um or or writing the production draft and prepping we were starting to cast some of these incredible actors so we had carrie coon you know and um and and the remainder of the cast who who was in the press room and to not use them as much as possible (laughs) would have been really dumb and i think it's also um, important for that moment to realize that it's not just a win for Kay and Ben. Yes, it is. And we see that it's a win for them, but her win really comes when she stands up for herself, you know, and, and Ben's win really comes at that moment too, because he's going to get to publish. And so the Supreme court upholding it, you know, that, um, that, that's a sort of almost an intellectual win. Um, if we're seeing that, the emotional win is for the journalists who realize that their work is going to endure. And not only that, that they're allowed now to go deeper. And, you know, it's also a bit of a, a moment that is, you know, in, in every, you know, the thing when you write about um, an important moment in journalism is that every journalist writes a book about it. So all of the journalists involved in the Pentagon Papers have, if not all, then most have written um, memoirs and or histories of, of the events. And many of them credit this moment to Watergate, to the publishing of Watergate, of the, of the Watergate um, investigation. 
mm. or in the investigation into Watergate because they felt such freedom and felt such power in being told that as journalists, your job is to tell the truth and that we actually, as the Supreme Court, are agreeing with you that you should be telling the truth. You have freedom of the press. Um that that then empowered them to go deeper and darker into the Nixon administration and investigate Watergate. Mm. And as you mentioned, it is, it's a win for like political freedom and the freedom of the press. But even in this early draft, there's a small moment where you get a sense that this is a win for women as well. And, you know, there's in the finished film, it's um, she meets a, was it a clerk for the, for the government? So she says, we shouldn't really be talking, but and there's this kind of moment of aberration, and in the finished film, Stephen kind of embellishes it by having um, by having Kay come down and walk down these steps, and flanking her are all these kind of are all these women just looking at her with these um, admiring glances. What does that moment mean to you, and why was it important that you kind of like have this little grace note that hammers home that this is this was a this was a feminist story as well? Um, well, I just want to say that the clerk and and that scene, she's named after my mom, which was a fun thing to do. Oh, so wow. um, shout out to Nancy. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's it was important because I think so often stories about women um, are not are almost run away from being feminist stories or or empowering feminist stories. Um, you know, it's it's about the personal success, which I think is important. And obviously for Kay, her, her, um, her personal success in this defined the next, you know, 40 years of her life, 30 years of her life. Um, and she became a different person almost because she became the person that she always was, but just couldn't be. And, but it wasn't just about Kay, you know, it was about everybody who was inspired by her and everybody who, um, regardless, I think of, uh, and, and I think it is feminist and it is specifically about women, but it's also just about the underdog. It's about, you know, mm. the people who were told you're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're the only person in a room, um, that looks like you or talks like you. And now that person won. And so I think there's a lot of inspiration in that and that I found so much inspiration in that. And so for me, the end, wanting to have that moment, um, with with Nancy the clerk and with Kay, and then Stephen going a step further of having the women sort of flanking her as she walks down. That was really my kind of my note, little like my kind of note to Kay in the ether. That's like I saw you and I heard you and I th- and thank you. Um, and I I think we have to recognize those women and those people in our lives who stand up when things are. It'd be much much easier to not stand up and. And tell them that they are inspiring, and so I was really proud of 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 not only that scene, but then of Stephen, you know, which he did kind of like on the day he he started putting these women in line and and kind of having them flank her, and it was really a beautiful moment to see. You mentioned earlier about like not allowing yourself this moment to kind of flip out, or things were so busy that you couldn't flip out. When the film kind of came came out. Or when you kind of went to the premiere, was was there a moment when you did kind of have that reaction and you, it did all kind of sink in what you, what you had done, what you had made, what you had achieved? Yeah. So there was a moment um, at the premiere where it was, um, we premiered at the Museum, RIP, um, in DC, which is a, it used to be this absolutely incredible space that was a museum dedicated to the press. And, um, it was on my birthday, which was strange. Um, and that's a nice birthday party. It was a very nice birthday party. My husband's totally screwed, has been <laughs> screwed forever now because of that. Um, Meryl Streep's never turned up to one of my birthday parties. I know. I know she's hard to get. Um, you got to put her in a movie and then she'll show up. Um, but so we all, it was the full, it was almost the entire cast and, um, you know, almost and Steven and, and our producers and Josh and I, and we were there with our families and um, we, Steven introduced the movie and the cast. And then um, we all went upstairs for this dinner. And I had this moment where I was, and, and in the room, so the premiere because it was in DC was not sort of a typical premiere. It wasn't like, you know, um, studio executives, it was journalists and, um, 
and, uh, you know, like Bezos, you know, type of people who were involved in journalism and involved in politics. And like Woodward and Bernstein were there, which is just like the most intimidating thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and we were sitting upstairs having dinner and I, it kind of just hit me. And I was like, I'm sitting in this room with all of these people and we're talking about this movie that we made and people are watching it downstairs. I think that was the thing that made it very real to me was that like the movie is playing downstairs. Um, and so it, was a little unfortunate that it happened at the premiere because then I was just like in a daze the whole time and like hiding in a corner. So I didn't freak anybody out with my energy. <laughs> um, but, you know, that that probably was it. And there's really nothing like when you see your movie for the first time. And there's nothing like an audience seeing your movie for the first time. Mm-hmm. I don't usually watch movies again that I've been a part of or, or television shows that I've been a part of. Cause once it's done, I'm sort of like, all I'm going to look at is things that I could have done differently. And with this, I watched it one time with an audience and it was a, the most horrifying experience of my life. Cause every <laughs> moment I was like, did they laugh? Did they, is why is somebody chuckling? Is it, was it supposed to be funny here? Or like, why isn't anybody cheering what's happening? And so I was very critical of my audience. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's just, there's something really magical about the moment that an audience watches your movie and, and you're there and you know it and it's terrifying, but it's also, you know, I was like, I couldn't be surrounded by a better group of people and better. And, you know, that's the thing is that they're not only probably three, four five, six, there's so many people involved in this movie that are legends. Um, like Janusz Kaminski shot this, it's insane. Um, that uh, John Williams to the score. Like that's yeah. a thing that happened. It's that, <laughs> by the way, my husband is the most excited about. He was like, Steven Spielberg's so great, but John Williams. <laughs> um, so those things like happen and it's crazy. And the moment that you kind of have that happen and you realize that these aren't just legends, they're truly wonderful people who are so excited to be there and they're there for the right reasons. Um, so that was kind of when it hit me. And then I basically have spent the last three and a half years in a daze. You've also spent the last three and a half years doing some quite dramatically different work. So All the Bright Places, a romantic drama, The Long Shot was a Seth Rogen comedy. Was that a conscious move? Did you want to show there's a whole breadth to what you can write? Absolutely. I um, I was really lucky um, right after The Post. I, I had signed on to do another movie that, that was a political thriller that I ended up writing. Um, but it's, you know... It's um, it's not the only thing I'm interested in. You know, it's it's obviously a huge part of things I'm interested in. I think that political thrillers are important, and and movies about journalism are very important um, because they have the ability to remind, remind people that journalists aren't the enemy um, and that the truth is important. But I, you know, I I had before I um, wrote full time. I'd worked for Charlize Theron in development at a production company. And so Longshot was a movie that had been in development for a while. And it was, I think I was on set for the post when they asked me if I would come on board. And I, we wrapped the post on a Sunday on Monday morning. I, and we were in New York on a Monday morning. I started working on Longshot and then wow. we were in production maybe two months later, two and a half months later. So it was, again, it was kind of like a very quick ride. Um, but, and the thing for me about that was like, how insane would I be if I didn't want to hang out in a room and learn comedy from Seth Rogen and Jonathan Levine <laughs> like that and, and Dan Sterling? Like why, yeah. why would be bananas not to do that? And so the joke started is that like, I would write a very dramatic version of the movie and they would make it funny. Um, and it turned out to be much more collaborative and some of the most emotional moments in the movie, I think, you know, um, Dan and Seth and Levine are, are huge, huge parts of. Um, but I also like the American president is one of my favorite movies and romantic comedies, romantic dramas are things that I feel like very ingrained in. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen one that I really liked in a while. And so I wanted to, I wanted to try and I like doing things that are hard. You know, I don't, I think doing things that are hard is what makes it interesting. And, um, if you do something that's really hard and it's good, then it's a way more satisfying win than if you do something that's easy and it's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And can I ask what you've got coming up? 
Yes. So I'm writing a movie um, right now called Lee, which is based on Lee Miller, who was a photographer, uh, a photojournalist during World War II. Mm. Um, Kate Winslet is starring and producing and Ellen Curis is going to direct it. So that's just an insane wealth of riches right there. Um, uh, so that's really exciting. I, I have been involved with the project for a few years and um, uh, I had not known who Lee Miller was before I had signed on to do the project. And so I strongly, strongly recommend everybody to go check her out and check out her books um, and, and, and her photographs. Absolutely incredible woman. So I'm doing that. Um, and then I am going to direct a feature um, hopefully next year if we are ever out of quarantine um, based on a book that comes out next March called um, uh, Who is Maude Dixon? And it is um, a thriller in the vein of, I would say, Talented Mr. Ripley. And the big question is, um, do you think having kind of immersed yourself in the issues and themes relating to suppression of press and governmental cover up and all the things that are very much in the ether right now, um, do you think in years to come, you might be tempted to write a film, uh, the post-esque film about the Trump years and his fake news assault on truth and objectivity? Hmm. Um, I think if there was a right way in and a right character to focus it on, I could be interested in it, but I don't particularly want to give him any more uh, screen time than he already has. And mm -hmm. if and when he's ever gone, then I hope we just don't have to mention him or see his face again. So I would, I think, potentially um, do something, I think, similar with the post where Nixon is not seen. And, and those are really Nixon's, that's, that's really Nixon's voice. Those are his actual tapes yeah. that we were able to use. So we didn't even have to get a voice actor. Um, Stephen used to say he got first choice of everybody in the cast, including Richard Nixon. Um, so uh, I think if there was a version of doing something like that, I could be interested in it. But I feel like we all have to kind of get out of this and then deal with our PTSD for a while. And then potentially we can look at what happened. Well, Liz, this has been so fascinating. And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This was awesome. Thank you guys so much. been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamel Demack, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hold up. 